when you have people coming together to support a common goal, you can have an impact that's greater than the sum of, of each individual voice. And that's really important to remember in any advocacy effort. You know, you, you think of the classic, what is it? You, you give a, a little kid a toothpick or a thing of spaghetti and point out that they can break a single strand, but a whole bunch of them together are really strong and sturdy. And so it's really just, just that lesson that we are stronger together than we are apart. But at the same time, it's important to recognize that each individual contributor to these kind of collaborations is really important and has their own interesting, unique perspective to bring. You know, ASGCT, for example, is, is a scientific organization. And so we, we can really bring that perspective of how new therapies are developing, how gene therapy is different, how, how the pipeline might impact patients. Advances in gene and cell therapy are enabling researchers, clinicians, families, and regulators to work together in incredible new ways to treat previously untreatable conditions. Listen to Christina Meyer share her efforts to advance policies that helps you realize a future where the gene and cell therapies are available to all individuals for all diseases. Christina is currently the Senior Manager of the Government Affairs at the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She works with federal government agencies and decision makers to impact key components of gene and cell therapy, like the NIH research funding, genetic testing and screening, payment policy, and payment access to approved therapies. She also contributes to the society's work on other policy priorities, such as regulatory oversight and the responsible use of new genetic technology. Christina has a Master's of Public Administration from the University of Nebraska-Omaha. Listen with us as we imagine a future where the availability and the equitable use of gene and cell therapies helps to realize the promise of a healthy future for all. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MDSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, 
Become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Thank you for joining us today on the Newborn Screening Spotlight, Christina. You are currently the Senior Manager of Government Affairs at the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. Can you tell us about the mission of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy? What is your role there? ASGCT is a professional membership organization for really anybody who has an interest or a role in the gene and cell therapy field. Our members are scientists, physicians, uh, patient advocates, other professionals, really kind of spans the whole field. And those members work in a wide range of settings. So places like universities, hospitals, um, government agencies, foundations or other nonprofits and biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies. So we really have folks who have a hand in every aspect of the gene and cell therapy process. The, if you look at our website, the formal mission of ASGCT is to advance the knowledge, awareness, and education that leads to discovery and clinical application of genetic and cellular therapies to alleviate human disease, which is a bit of a mouthful. So what it, what it means really is that ASGCT supports the field from bench to bedside. That means we try to help researchers make and share new basic research discoveries. We support members who work in biotechs in the pharmaceutical industry to develop therapies for patients. And then we also support translational studies that bridge that space between the sort of bench and bedside, um, which is really critical to support. For those who don't know, a lightning summary of what gene therapy even is, it's a, a therapeutic approach that treats or prevents clinical disease by modifying a person's genes in some way. So that might mean replacing a, a misfiring gene with a new healthy copy or silencing that gene, or it might mean introducing a totally new or tweaked gene that has some therapeutic benefit. And that new genetic material is typically delivered into the cell using a vector, which is often, but not always, virus that's been hollowed out, had its original viral gene scooped out and the payload gene added. Because if we learned anything from COVID-19, it's that viruses are extremely good at getting inside human cells. And so there are a number of different typical viral vectors that gene therapy scientists might use. And if you're interested in learning more about how the whole gene therapy field works, we have a really great patient education website that you can find on ASGCT.org that I highly recommend for anybody who wants to learn more. And for me specifically, I work with the policy and advocacy team. So we really do whatever's necessary to advance the policies that support development of and then access to gene and cell therapies. We do a lot of work advocating with Congress and with federal agencies like the National Institutes of Health, Food and Drug Administration, FDA, or CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and really like I said, anybody who's interested has something to say in the gene cell therapy field. We are interested in working with them and advocating for policies to, to make sure the field continues to advance and grow. What an exciting and rewarding time to advocate for gene and cell therapies. Just amazing. Your organization and your work reminds us that there are literally thousands of clinical trials for novel therapies. And over the next decade, there will be about 30 approved therapies for genetic disease, not counting cancer. What can our listeners do to become more aware of these efforts and to become advocates for the continued advancement and access to these life-saving and in many cases, disease-curing therapies? For folks who are maybe a patient or a family friend of a patient or family or friend of a patient, um, or both, 
uh, it's really important to educate yourself on what's known and unknown about whatever condition it is that you're interested in or, or the condition that impacts you because there's new and exciting science happening all the time. And so what's known today is not necessarily what's going to be known tomorrow. Taking the time to kind of learn about what it is you're dealing with is really important because then it's also critically important for decision makers to hear from the people who are impacted by these genetic conditions. If you hear about a piece of legislation that you care about, we absolutely encourage you to go ahead and give your representative a call or send him an email. And don't forget also that these decisions are happening on both the federal and the state level. So that includes both Congress in DC and as well as the state legislature, um, wherever you happen to live. The discussions in these area can be really complex and there's a lot of different conversations and proposals flying around at any given moment. So it can be a little bit difficult for an individual to you know, hear about and decide this is a topic I wanna to get involved in. And that's especially true if you're somebody who's living with an illness or providing that critical caregiving for somebody who is, because that, you know, that can take up a lot of your bandwidth. To amplify your voice, it's a great idea to look for organizations that can help represent your interests. ASGCT, of course, is a member organization that's primarily researchers, but we also have a, a number of patient advocate members who participate. But we also deeply appreciate the kind of focused expertise of our partners in the patient advocacy realm. We encourage folks to join one of the many really great there are disease-specific advocacy groups out there, or you might get involved with an umbrella organization that works with lots of different conditions. And one thing to point out is that many of the diseases in the gene therapy field, at least, that are, are sort of most amenable to that treatment method are rare diseases. But of course, as our friends in the rare disease community point out, rare diseases are not in fact rare. There are hundreds of thousands of Americans living with rare diseases today. Those organizations in particular can be a really great place to start to, to get your voice heard. And there are lots of people out there working really hard on that. And then the other thing, which is not a direct advocacy route, but we recommend that folks get involved in STEM. Um, whether you're a parent who has kids who might be excited about science or someone who's just maybe starting college and kind of looking for a career path, or somebody who's got an established career and you just are interested in and love the, the concept of science. Um, we always need folks who are excited about science, researchers who are in the field, you know, making tomorrow's discoveries, as well as people who just understand the value of science and STEM education, even if you're not somebody who's in the lab yourself. Um, and that's particularly true for women in underrepresented minorities. So we really need people from all walks of life to, to be involved and get excited and contact your representatives and make your voice heard in whatever way works for you. In its 2020 to 2022 strategic plan, your organization identified access to genetic testing and screening as one of its core patient access priorities. What efforts have been made by your organization to advance access to genetic testing and screening in newborns? What are ways that our listeners can get connected to your organization? Well, I'll start with the easy question first, which is that to connect with ASGCT, we do, of course, welcome people to join as members and be involved that way, which is available on our website. Again, it's just ASGCT.org. But we also offer lots of public programming that's, again, listed on under the events tab of our website that does not require membership. So that is everything from standalone 
We have like patient-focused lunch and learns about gene therapy. We also have things like free professional development seminars for early career scientists who are interested in cell and gene therapy concepts. And then we also have bigger events like our annual meeting, which takes place every year in May and it travels around the country. And then we have a policy summit that takes place each fall out in DC to talk about some of these advocacy, gene and cell therapy specific advocacy topics. But going back to the strategic plan, ASGCT really got involved in newborn screening with that strategic plan that started in 2020. Compared to some of the patients and researchers who you all have interviewed previously, ASGCT is comparatively new to newborn screening, but we are extremely excited to be involved in working on it now because it is really critical to the field. To give a, a very brief sort of history detour, the American Society of Gene Therapy, we added cell therapy in 2009, was founded in 1996 with a group of scientists who really wanted to bring gene therapies out of the lab and get them to patients. But the first FDA approval of a viral vector mediated gene therapy, so again, something that uses one of those scooped out viruses um, to deliver a one-time therapy for genetic disease, the first FDA approval wasn't until 2017. So 21 years later. Um, and that was for a product called Luxterna, which treats a form of very rare inherited pro progressive vision lost. And then in 2019, FDA approved a product called Zolgensma, which is a single administration gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy or SMA, which is a particularly devastating disease, frequently fatal within a few years of birth. With these new approved therapies on hand and the field's rapid growth that went along with that, all of the things, the therapies that are in the pipeline, it became really clear to ASGCT's members that we needed to get involved in newborn screening directly and lend our voice to all the folks who've been doing such great work in, for years to come or for years already, because that was a really critical part of the equation that we, we previously hadn't engaged with. So in terms of, of what ASGCT has been involved in, we've advocated to federal decision makers to support newborn screening sort of in, in the general sense, you know, explain what gene therapy is and why it's relevant to the newborn screening pipeline or to why the pipeline is relevant to newborn screening rather, and also sort of highlighted the ways that the current system isn't prepared to handle that pipeline, which you mentioned earlier, there are thousands of clinical trials currently active. We've also though supported some of those partner organizations that we're great friends with to educate lawmakers in key states on newborn screening issues. And we've hosted a number of newborn screening focused events that I think we'll talk about more later. Thank you, Christina. In the world of newborn screening, Dr. Chan and I work on newborn screening research, and our research is funded by the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, and we're actually part of the Hunter Kelly Newborn Screening Research Program. So our work at MBSTRN was called out in something called the Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act. This time last year in 2001, your organization provided a public comment to a federal advisory committee that guides newborn screening called the Advisory Committee on Heritable Disorders in Newborns and Children. In that letter, you stated your support for the Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act. Can you tell our listeners more about the history of the act, why it was important that it got passed, and what would happen if it's not reauthorized soon? As I was preparing for this podcast, I went back and listened to some of the earlier episodes and really enjoyed the one by Dr. Rodney Howell, who gave that great overview of sort of how the entire newborn screening system developed holistically from the 60s all the way up to today, 
you know, if, if folks haven't listened to that one, I do highly recommend it. But one of the things that's really important to remember and that he pointed out is that newborn screening programs are run by each of the 50 states and the District of Columbia, DC. There are many, many different panels, but the Advisory Committee on Heritable Disorders and Newborns and Children that you mentioned, the ACHBNC, was actually created in 2003 and first met in 2004. And then in 2005, I know our erstwhile host of this podcast, the American College of Medical Genetics, I think as you were called at the time, released the proposed core condition panel, which had, I believe, 29 primary, 25 secondary conditions, and that was adopted in 2008. So that was sort of the, the first creation of, of the ACHDNC and then that core panel. But then also in 2008, you had the original Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act, which I've seen shortened to NBSSLA, but that doesn't actually seem all that much shorter. But in any case, so in 2008, that was passed. It was a bipartisan act that funded federal, state, and local newborn screening activities. It also created a central information repository for parents. And then finally, the Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act required the ACHDNC to continue making recommendations to states on what conditions should be screened for in newborns. And there are another, a number of other provisions, including, like you mentioned, the, the research funding. But for our conversation, I think those are sort of the ones to, to highlight. And then in 2010, the initial recommended uniform screening panel, or the RUSP, was established by that advisory committee, the ACHDNC. And so for states to receive federal funding to support their newborn screening programs, they have to be aiming, at least aiming to screen for all conditions on the RUSP. The ACHDNC has a process for new conditions to be added to that RUSP list. The two of the key requirements are that the test is actionable, which is interpreted as there has to be a treatment for this condition available. And then there also has to be a validated lab test available. Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act was first reauthorized in 2014. It's a bill that does have to be reauthorized in Congress every few years. So it came up for reauthorization again in 2020. Uh, it did pass the House at that time, but not the Senate. And Congress has been stalled ever since over issues related to parental consent for research on those dried blood spots that are collected in order to perform the newborn screening panels. The lack of reauthorization has not been catastrophic to the committee's, the ACHDNC's kind of core work, because the Secretary of Health and Human Services does have the authority to keep that committee going without the Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act. The program has been well-funded in the appropriations process, but the authorization is really important for the program to you know, thrive into the future and keep, keep pace with innovation in the drug pipeline. For one thing, you know, it means something to have congressional backing to say that the federal government fully supports this program and would like it to keep going in this kind of codified way. But the 2020 reauthorization would also have included some really important provisions like assistance to develop state follow-up programs after a baby has received a diagnosis, which is a, a really important part of that process. You receive your diagnosis and then what? So that follow-up is really critical. Funds for that NIH program that, that you mentioned, Dr. Brower, to develop improved strategies for things like detection and treatment and prevention of inherited disease. And so for those reasons, well, you know, we appreciate that the ACHDNC is still able to at least operate without the reauthorization, but we do strongly support the sort of formal recodification, reauthorization of the act and continued work to modernize the RUSP process.
Christina, to follow up Dr. Brown's question, in the letter, your organization offered three recommendations to the advisory committee on heritable diseases in newborns intrusion. The recommendations are number one, ensure that the rust keeps pace with treatment approval. Two, collaborate with and rely on FDA. Three, ensure the process to advance disorder through the advisory committee on heritable disorder in newborns and children is transparent predictable, and timely. Would you mind sharing the evidence that supported each of the recommendations? Each of those three recommendations is grounded in a sort of set of related ideas. The first is that to get access to life-altering approved gene therapies, diagnosing patients as early as possible is really critical. The second is that early diagnosis is also important to enable patients to explore clinical trials of new therapeutic approaches. And the third is that newborn screening provides researchers with a really crucial source of information about populations living with a given disease to help guide their investigations for innovative new treatment approaches. So sickle cell disease is a really good example of that third one, that there are approved treatments for you know, things like hydroxyurea for sickle cell disease, but it's also a, an indication that gene therapy might be a really interesting alternate treatment option. And so for researchers who are working on new therapies, newborn screening programs can really give them a good sense of, of what the population is that's already living with it. But going back to the letter, so our first recommendation, like you said, is that the RUSP needs to keep pace with treatment approvals. And that's really based on a, a historical view of how the panel has operated previously. In many cases, it's taken years between when FDA approved a treatment for a particular condition and adoption onto the RUSP for that now treatable condition. For, for reference, there were 29 core conditions included in that initial core condition proposal in 2008. And today there are 35, I believe, conditions included on the RUSP 14 years later. Certainly the society appreciates that states testing infrastructures have to be carefully evaluated and prepared to begin screening for any new condition at scale. You know, this, this isn't a case where you just snap your fingers and suddenly you can start screening babies all over the place. It does require some ramp up, but ASGCT also has some concerns about there being delays after new therapies improved in informing states, parents, and physicians that testing might now lead to an actionable diagnosis. So, so something you can really treat, which, in, you know, it's sort of a, a chicken and egg in some respects, which is you have to show evidence that treatment is effective before you screen. So how, how do you identify some of those issues. And it's also important to point out that many, although not all, of the genetic conditions that are or could soon be treatable with gene therapies are often progressive and potentially irreversible. So that means that treatment with an approved therapy or in a clinical trial might halt progression of the condition, but may not reverse or bring back function or resolve physiological damage that's already occurred. Um, so fast diagnosis and treatment is really critical there. Our second recommendation was that the ACHDNC, the committee, collaborate with and rely upon FDA. The FDA approval process for any new therapy is really meant to ensure and does ensure that new drugs and biologics are safe and effective for people to take. And so the clinical trials process, which FDA oversees as part of, of their decision to um, approve any new drug, the clinical trials process is really rigorous and time-consuming and collects a ton of information that is then shared with FDA to inform their ultimate decision-making process. So really our suggestion with this point is that the committee should ensure that nominating groups 
nonprofits, whoever it is that suggests the condition should be added to the RUSP, ensure that they aren't being asked to collect data that's redundant to work that's already been performed as part of that clinical trial process. And also that ACHDNC should work with FDA to, to stay informed about what's coming in the pipeline. Obviously, you have to make sure that you're preserving confidential information as part of that process, um, but really just make sure that the committee knows what's coming so if they aren't you know, surprised when, when a new therapy comes through. And then our third recommendation was to make sure that the ACHDNC process for nominating commission conditions is transparent, predictable, and timely. HGCT has heard from patient groups, particularly who have gone through this nomination process, that it can be a little bit difficult to follow and can have some unclear standards and timelines as part of that process. So our ask here is really for the committee to provide more public guidance on the data standards that they're looking for um, and what kind of collaborations nominating organizations are allowed to enter into. Because what, what we really don't want is for these nominating organizations to spend a bunch of time collecting information that they ultimately aren't allowed to use to make their case for RUSP inclusion. And one potential solution that states are experimenting with, particularly to address the, the first issue of, of timeliness, is something called RUSP alignment legislation. Basically, when a condition is added to the RUSP, any state with RUSP alignment legislation automatically adds it to their screening system within a certain period of time. It's usually two, three, maybe four years. You, you do need time to kind of ramp up your testing infrastructure. This replaces sort of the original old system, which is that the legislature in each state typically has to consider and approve each new RUSP condition individually, which is really time intensive. State legislatures have other things going on, and so things can get delayed um, unnecessarily. But again, that, that RUSP alignment relies on, number one, funding being available, and number two, that conditions are on the RUSP at all, which is, so those two things are really where ASGCT's advocacy has been aimed in this case, is to make sure that uh, states have what they need and organizations that are nominating have what they need to make sure this is a smooth process. Thanks, Christina. ASGCT has worked with partner organizations to support various aspects of newborn screening from, as you talked about, the research to the translation to clinical care and public health practice. And in fact, your organization is hosting a workshop symposium in May to discuss advancements in newborn screening. And thank you for inviting us at MDSDRM to present during the workshop. Can you tell us a little bit more about these important events and how our listeners can participate in them? The pre-meeting workshop that you're referring to that we are very excited to have you all pre uh, present in is called Newborn Screening Toward a System That Keeps Pace with Gene Therapy Advances. Um, and that will take place in conjunction with ASGCT's annual meeting on May 15th, 2022. So it's a half-day workshop. And it's a really great group of advocates that uh, are going to discuss ways to modernize the newborn screening system to address some of the issues that we've already discussed here. So we have a couple of sessions. There's one that looks at the RUSP as both sort of a current and future consideration. You know, how does it work now and how might it work in the future? We have a session on state implementation and innovation, which includes discussions both of how to hasten state uptake of newly of conditions that are newly added to the RUSP, but then also a discussion of what states can do before a condition is on the RUSP. 
so that you're not just basically waiting for that to happen. We have a session on data collection and newborn screening programs, which is where you all will come in, which like I said, we're very excited about. That's especially looking at like pilot programs and how um, nominating organizations collect that data that has to be submitted. And then finally, we'll have a session on evaluating emerging screening methods and clinical programs. Registration for that is open now. Like I said, it'll take place May 15th, 2022. We are going to be back in person in Washington, D.C. this year, which we're very excited about. But there's also a virtual option to participate if you either can't or just don't want to head all the way out to Washington, D.C. So it's a uh, hybrid option. And just a note for listeners, there is a registration fee to attend this workshop, but if you're a patient or an advocacy organization that wants to join, if you don't have the budget to attend, if you're concerned about finances, please do get in touch with me at ASGCT, and we may be able to offer complimentary registration. So we want to make sure that folks who are integrated into this process, that that those folks are able to attend and learn and and contribute as well, because there will be some in-depth Q&A sessions. So my email is available on the ASGCT website under the staff page. You and Dr. Brown serve on the planning committee for an effort by the Every Life Foundation to develop actionable policy solutions aimed at ensuring newborn screening continues to advance. Research facilitated by MBS-TRN and ASGCT GCT, as well as the policy that you and your team champion, can you describe why these type of efforts to build coalitions and collaborations across different stakeholder groups are so important? I mean, in in any advocacy effort, when you have people coming together to support a common goal, you can have an impact that's greater than the sum of, of each individual voice. And that's really important to remember in any advocacy effort. You know, you think of the classic, what is it? You, you give a, a little kid a toothpick or a thing of spaghetti and point out that they can break a single strand, but a whole bunch of them together are really strong and sturdy. And so it's really just, just that lesson that we are stronger together than we are apart. But at the same time, it's important to recognize that each individual contributor to these kind of collaborations is really important and has their own interesting, unique perspective to bring. You know, ASGCT, for example, is, is a scientific organization. And so we, we can really bring that perspective of how new therapies are developing, how gene therapy is different, how, how the pipeline might impact patients. But then there's also a really important role for um, organizations that specialize in that patient and family uh, viewpoint talking about thing, you know, the day-to-day realities of what it means to live with these conditions, um, which is so impactful and it's really crucial for policymakers and, and really any decision maker in this field to understand. And then of course, there's other contributors, you know, too many to name, but public health labs, specialist clinicians and geneticists, generalist pediatricians who, who deal with kids who are getting newborn screening tests, you name it. Everybody really is important to bring their unique perspective, but then when you sort of combine those voices into one, it it really, it does a lot to to amplify that message. Thank you, Christina. You have a very interesting career path, and the work you do every day inspires many of us to achieve, to work to achieve meaningful change and help to advance discoveries that save and improve lives. Can you share with our listeners what sparked your interest in this revolution that is gene and cell therapy, as well as newborn screening research? 
at the the ripe old age of 30, uh, my career path has had you know a, a couple of zigs and zags. Um, my, my first job after college was actually working with the Nebraska unicameral legislature, which inspired me to get my master of public administration, which is really sort of a study of the plumbing that underpins organizations and governments. And I, I really enjoyed that, that policy work at the Nebraska unicameral. And I think I can honestly trace that back all the way to high school uh, when I participated in competitive speech and particularly a event called extemporaneous speaking where you had to, you drew a topic and you had a half hour to scramble to basically write a speech on some news topic, and then you presented it right then and there. And so in order to be prepared for that, I had to read the news constantly and sort of already know some of the topics they were gonna be asking about. And so really at that point, I learned to be curious about the world around me and about the people who are making decisions that really affect millions, sometimes billions of people. After the legislature, I honestly kind of lucked into gene and cell therapy when I moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is where ASGCT is based. I'm somebody who enjoys the concepts of health and science, but like math does not particularly speak to me, which as a child of two electrical engineers is, you know, makes me a bit of a black sheep in the family. But like I said, I like the concepts of supporting health and science. And so working in the policy field for an organization like ASGCT is a way to be involved in both. And honestly, there are a lot of really important career paths that let you work with and support science without being at the bench yourself. So if you're somebody who is, is interested in this field, but you know, you're thinking that, well, I don't have a PhD or I'm not really a science person myself, that shouldn't stop you for a second. There are lots of ways to get involved, again, through patient advocacy organizations, either as a volunteer, or you can, you can make that something that's your profession. There, there are lots of ways to help out. Oh, wow. I didn't realize I had a fellow Cornhusker on the line. <laughs> Absolutely. Go yeah, so we, yeah. So we both graduated from the University of Nebraska Lincoln and Christina, we, we have many interns that work for MBSTRN through the years who come from UNL. So we've got a strong sort of internship pipeline from Lincoln, Nebraska to Bethesda, Maryland. So That's great to it's hear. very, yeah, so it's very cool to have you, to know that about you and your history. And I love how you drew the line from being, you know, in speech and those types of activities and being so up on the news and then learning how policy and, you know, laws get enacted because as you know, with newborn screening, such a rare mix of public health, clinical practice, lifelong care in a lot of cases, and it all depends on legislation, you know, because it's such a mix of federal programs with state and local. So it's such a, it's such an area ripe for research. And I think for Dr. Chan and I, with our trainings in, you know, genomics and medical genetics and epidemiology and public health, it's sort of the perfect mix to, to conduct research because we've got population-based research. And for you on the policy and advocacy side, I could see how, you know, newborn screening is sort of this perfect scenario for all of us to try to advance um, really important efforts. So this Absolutely. is great. These, these podcasts definitely develop some new coalitions. So it's <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Chan to ask a final question. Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate what ASGCT is doing. And thank you so much for sharing your career journey as well. 
We'd like to end our podcast with our signature question, and that is, what does newborn screening research mean to you? Yeah, I was thinking about this question, and I think that newborn screening to me really means promise, and, and that there's kind of two ways to think about that. The first one is that it is a promise in the sense of a commitment from our public health system to ID babies with genetic conditions as soon as possible today to get them connected with that life-saving or life-altering treatments um, that are available to clinical trials, to other supportive care, whatever is out there. The promise that the system as it exists today will, will reach those babies and get them what they need. But then I think it also means promise in the sort of hopeful forward-looking sense, which is that the, the promise of new treatments is out there, that researchers in the biomedical field are working their hardest to develop so that we can continue to help babies with diseases that you know, currently have no treatments or might not even have a firm diagnosis at this point, because there are a lot of, especially in the, in, with genetic diseases, you know, we, we know that there's something different, but not necessarily enough to connect you know, exactly to a diagnosis. Like you were just saying, Dr. Bauer, it kind of takes everyone who's interested to pull together and weigh in to support this system to make sure that it can function effectively now, but also to make sure it's equipped to tackle what comes next. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together, let's increase increase the impact impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories. stories.